Good evening, everybody. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Um, this event tonight is unfortunately very well-timed. Uh, as we sit here, North Korea has from one to five missiles ready to fire for what they say is testing. News outlets around the world have been playing up the threat, which has added to big headlines and some furrowed brows here in Washington. But there is another side to the threats, and I think that will be informed somewhat by the film that we're about to watch tonight. We're now uh, close to a year into the reign of Kim Jong-un, the birthday of his grandfather Kim Il-sung, the first of this family of dictators in North Korea is on Monday. The government has orchestrated mass waltzes featuring men in suits, women in colorful dresses to mark the occasion. So it is perhaps merely a part of this sort of celebration that North Korea earned these types of headlines to earn that all-important internal support to keep this backwards country from collapsing. So our film tonight is Juche Strong, and I will get to it as quickly as possible so we can have as much time for questions as possible. Uh, the filmmaker is Rob Montz. Rob is, most importantly, a former Cato intern uh, from 2005. Represent. Uh, he uh, is currently a, f a fellow at the film fellow at the Moving Picture Institute, which has sponsored the film. And uh, he has a degree in philosophy from Brown University, where he graduated magna cum laude. Is that right? Yes, thank you for including that. <laughs> Essential information. Uh, Rob, Rob's going to introduce the film, and then we're going to get some commentary and some questions uh, from Doug Bandow. Doug is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He is uh, my go-to for all things North Korea. Uh, he's, he is a former special assistant to President Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He writes for many leading publications and appears on major networks regularly to discuss these issues, most recently debating John Bolton on, uh, on Fox News. Uh, he holds a degree for, uh, or law degree from Stanford University. So I'm going to turn things over to, to Rob to sort of tell us whatever we need to know about this film before we watch it, and then we'll watch it, and then we'll talk about it. So, Great. Rob? Thank you, Caleb, and thank you all very much for being here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. It's, uh, it's surreal and very awesome to be back here after uh, I interned in the summer of 2000, 2005, so this auditorium didn't even exist back then. Um, so uh, I, the one thing I would say is this. So one of the ways that the federal government is currently justifying an incredibly aggressive stance towards North Korea, where you're investing a huge amount of money into military operations on the peninsula, is based upon, and I think justified by, a more general Western perception that during times like this where there's a severe military ramp up, this is a regime that actually might pull the trigger, right? That actually might attack, that is unpredictable, that is hopelessly bizarre, that is emotionally adolescent. And what my film is going to attempt to do over the course of 18 taut minutes is to sort of disabuse you of that particular perception. This regime is unequivoc unequivocally evil. I mean, it's terrible. But the way that it is operated is anything but idiotic or bizarre, that this is a regime that has demonstrated a very keen sense of how to preserve itself, particularly through what I think is one of the key pillars of their version of totalitarianism, which is the propaganda apparatus. So the kind of story that they tell to the average North Korean is made on purpose. It's not haphazard, and it taps into some very particular cultural and historical predilections of the North Korean people. And I think it's the propaganda apparatus, the national ideology, the story, the grander challenge that the average North Korean 
believes themselves to be a part of is an essential reason why this regime hasn't collapsed. But if you see this as a country that operates with a certain level of Machiavellian and evil intelligence, you're less likely to believe a lot of the hyperbole about the imminent attacks from the North Korean regime. And if you don't believe that, I think you begin to come to what is a decidedly non-interventionist position towards the country, which just so happens to align pretty closely with what I think Doug thinks about the issue as far as scaling back our troop presence, scaling back our military presence, and allowing the people that are, the agents in that region to sort of defend themselves. So I think that's sufficient introduction. All right, so uh, Blair in the control room, if you could run the film and uh, we'll come back for questions. on. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you for bringing that to us, Rob. Now, my first question really is uh, logistical because uh, video work is hard and getting people to talk to you is difficult. Uh, and then you had to do some of that in North Korea. So what logistically, how does that, how does that work? You know, I wish I could say there's some like secret and patented formula, but if you're just kind and curious, and you insist on following up, you'd be shocked who would talk to you. I mean, both in Pyongyang and major tenured academics who I have no right speaking to. Uh, I think it's really just a matter of, uh, I think that, at least for the interview subjects, and if there's any aspiring documentary filmmakers out there, mm -hmm. I think some people who get intimidated about asking, uh, overestimate how frequently they get asked. I think you don't quite realize that often if you frame it correctly, they'll, you'll be flattered to be invited to participate in a film like this. And in my experience, I think I had a 99% success rate with, as far as interview subjects. And then the big thing is about getting the covert footage in North Korea. Again, they, uh, they know if you're filming, if you have the viewfinder on, but because their knowledge of camera equipment stopped someplace in the 1990s, they don't realize that if you close the viewer, you can still be recording and you just hold it in your hand. And so you're not supposed to take photo of average citizens or military personnel, but if you just close the viewfinder, you can just keep on, keep on taking photos. I mean, it's not particularly technologically sophisticated, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell you, just blind self-confidence is the number one asset for all that stuff. Just don't even question yourself, and you'd be shocked by what, what it is that you can get done. Now, one of the most uh, uh, notable things was the comparison between how propaganda appears to everybody else and how the propaganda appears to people within North Korea. And I think that, should, that alone should disabuse people of a lot of uh, thoughts about North Korea. Kim Jong-il fancied himself a filmmaker. Uh, yes. Was, and was that material useful at all? Well, I purchased his book, but everything that's apparently been written by any of the Kim family members reads like <laughs> a graduate school dissertation that was written two hours before it was due and you had 10 pages left. So it's a lot of repetitious, multi-syllabic words 
that actually have no content of themselves. It's incredibly repetitious, and it feels like you're just trying to get right to book length, don't even copy check it, and just set it out to the masses. So that's, there's a book called, I think it's Kim Il-sung's Thoughts on the Arts of Cinema or something like that. <laughs> and I would say, the, the one quick thing, and I'm obviously more than happy to pontificate about this point in particular if asked, that idea of trying to normalize what the, how the propaganda works there is supposed to cut against, particularly now, a lot of the way this country is portrayed, particularly the average North Koreans, where I've noticed a shocking amount of just like brazen condescension for these people. Uh, I mean, you can make fun of the leader as much as you want, he deserves it, but the average person who's born there, this is just the world that they grew up in, and I think that we flatter ourselves when we think that we wouldn't do likewise if given that, if born into that environment, and more importantly, there is absolutely shared genetic material between very acute forms of ideological control in North Korea and pernicious political and religious rhetoric here at home. That if you consider yourself a libertarian, you can look around in our society and you'll notice that people are uncomfortably willing to give up certain freedoms if they think it's part of some grander story, right? I mean, it's in no way to morally parallel the two, but. There's a lot of people that if you tell them the right narrative, if you fit their choices within the right thing, they'll give up autonomous thought and they'll vote for that guy or they'll support X, Y, or Z self-made guru. And that ultimately, I think, is what I'm attempting to combat in the film. Uh, Doug, let me ask you, ask you one question and then we'll open it up to everybody here. Um, how many times can North Korea essentially defy expectations before the narrative about North Korea changes? Well, these systems have enormous resiliency. It's not just the North Korean example. You, one can think of Cuba, one can think of others. I mean, there are studies that came out of Washington think tanks after the Soviet collapse predicting that Cuba was going to collapse within six months, and it's been 20 years. Uh, I mean, the same thing on North Korea. I've respected friends who are thoughtful. They know the country, and they've predicted North Korea's imminent collapse. It has not collapsed. And I think there, there are multiple things going on. Part of it is the fact that there is a narrative there that's very powerful. I mean, I visited there. It's been 20 years. But this stuff is pervasive. <laughs> I mean, everywhere you go are photos of the leaders. Everywhere you go. I mean, on the streets, it's slogans over the streets, slogans in the fields, pictures on the buildings. I went running then, I was a marathon runner, so I ran every day in Pyongyang, took a different route. And early in the morning, you could look in windows of ground level apartments and you'd see pictures of the leaders in the apartments. What I found at that point, clearly they were preparing the transition. There was kind of the 1950s photo of the great leader Kim Il-sung. There was kind of the 1970s vintage photo of Kim Jong-il who was going to be taking over. And then there was a much more recent one showing the two conferring together. And I mean, this is kind of being almost everywhere you went, the three photos were there. And it clearly is showing the great leader preparing to pass on his legacy to the dear leader. So this is imprinted. And it is a very thuggish place. I mean, it's a very class-oriented place. There are multiple categories. You're, you're, you're basically, your family is, you know, they decide what your family is. You are ally or enemy. Pyongyang is for the nomenclature, for the elite. Uh, you know, if you're viewed as an enemy, you're out in the countryside. They will punish up to three generations. If there is a transgression within the family, you, your parents, and your kids go off to the labor camp. I mean, it's very powerful, very limiting in terms of resistance. And it's a system where if you essentially keep the two or three million people in Pyongyang and a million members of the military well-fed, it's very hard for 20 million peasants to organize. So you put together, I think, the narrative plus a totalitarian structure 
I wouldn't bet that this place is going to fall apart anytime soon. It's gone under enormous stress over the last 20 years. A half million people or more died of starvation, we think, in the 1990s, and it survived. So we should not assume, I wouldn't be betting, eventually I think it will go away, but how soon, who knows? All right, uh, questions, and uh, just a few notes here. Please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your question, announce your name and affiliation, and as always, please form your question in the form of a question. Uh, you, sir. <laughs> Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. Were you at all influenced by Lenny Riefenstahl as a filmmaker? I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, maybe he's so influential he influenced the guys that influenced well, me. Well, uh, Lenny, uh, just a note, Lenny Riefenstahl was a... Uh, propagated, uh, propagated on, on behalf of the totalitarian regime. regime. And a woman. And a woman. <laughs> no reason that can't be influential. Triumph of the will and later somewhat reformed herself into an environmentalist, I believe. <laughs> Okay. Um, you, ma'am, right here. Right here. Put your hand up. There you go. Hi, Rachel Oswald. I was wondering if I could get um, uh, the panel to respond to what they know of the impact of smuggled in media is happening on the North Korean populace. I mean, I, I hear that South Korean soap operas are hugely popular, you know, and these soap <coughs> operas depict a very wealthy South Korea where the people live a good life. And um, the fact that you hear that these things are so popular, it just wonders how, how, is that, uh, how is that meshing with the propaganda that they're getting? And what are we hearing from defectors on that? Right. So I have just two quick responses. I mean, the evidence we know that there must be stuff coming into the country because the propaganda apparatus, particularly over the last 10 years, has changed and adopted. Because there was a certain point in time in which they plausibly could have claimed that South Korea was just an economic wreck, but at a certain point enough people knew that that wasn't the case. So now it's much more focused on the racial purity thing and the notion that South Koreans are ashamed that they've fallen under the Yankee yoke and that they might have material goods, but they, uh, they, they crave like the pure ethnic uh, society that North Korea has been able to, to craft. The second thing I would say is I think that we sometimes underestimate how much outside information the people that have the upper, at the upper echelons of the country get access to. They actually get, they get quite a bit. Uh, Mrs. Ma, who's in this film, was kind of a mid-tier person in that apparatus, and she regularly traveled to China and had access to outside media. And I, I would say that it's instructive that we've had very, very few high-ranking defections in the country despite the fact, particularly over the last 20 years, they've had increasing amounts of information about the outside world. And I do think that part of that, there's multiple reasons why that would be the case, but part of that has to be that if you craft a worldview for someone that they wrap their entire identity up into, you'd be shocked by what sort of facts that they can fit into that worldview, even if it seems from our perspective that there's no way those two things can, be, uh, can, can, co can coincide with each other. So, yeah, I'd say that. I do think that this is where it's important that they have both this kind of propaganda worldview plus a totalitarian apparatus. If you're a high level and you defect, your family's dead. Your family's going to be in a labor camp. So it's, it's clearly a system where there's a high price to be paid. Right. The system is very much under stress. There's no doubt about that. I mean, there's always been contact across the Yalu. The provinces across the Yalu have a lot of ethnic Koreans. I mean, there's families and there's a lot of connections. 
And, and unless you have guards shooting at people, it's relatively easy to get across. I visited the city of Dandong, which is the Chinese city um, on the border, a lot of trade across. And it's phenomenal as, you know, I mean, Dandong is a modern city. You look across into North Korea and it's nothing. And I went with a Chinese student who said, who lived there, he grew up there, he's in college. And he said, you know, I, over the last 10 years, the growth on our side is extraordinary. And I look across and nothing's changed. And the North Koreans can see that. And what, there's been a lot more contact across for a time, especially with the famine, the regime in certain ways lost control. The food distribution system wasn't working. Ma I mean, hundreds of thousands of refugees, the Chinese send them back to a very ugly fate. But there's been a lot of traffic back and forth. There are more cell phones now in North Korea. Now you're not supposed to make international calls, but depending upon the risks you're willing to take, everyone has TVs and radios, they're preset. I mean, when I visited, I'd play with the radio and it would go chirp, 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 Kim Il-sung, chirp, 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 Kim Jong-il, chirp, chirp, chirp. But you, know, you, can, you could change that. Again, you're punished if you do that. Uh, but they're clearly, these have circulated in the black market. The, so there, there's a greater knowledge of what's out there and it has put the regime under stress because there's clearly more knowledge getting in. To some degree, what you find is a lot of people realize they're being told lies, but they don't quite know what the truth is. So it's harder for the regime They've been trying to clamp down under Kim Jong-un. They've made tougher along the Yalu to try to prevent people from getting across. But I do think this is one of the hopes undermining the regime is that you can put out the narrative, but at some point you know enough to know that that narrative isn't working and slowly the totalitarian system breaks down. But it's, it's a very tough system. Yeah, just quickly on that point, the, and I, I think I, it has to come from the ground up, and the thing that they've seen in a lot of the refugee accounts is, it's funny, so many of them have specifically said the real point where things snapped into place about the alternate reality that they'd been born into is when they go to China and they see that the dogs eat rice. Because rice is, I mean, it's very rare in North Korea. That multiple refugees have talked about that specific moment. They're like, wait a minute here. They're eating, they're eating this, luck. the dog is eating this luxury good. Something is really not right, so. Okay, you sir. A uh, amazing film. Um, so in listening to the experts describe how North Koreans, <laughs> regular North Koreans, view the propaganda, uh, I was wondering, what are their sources of information? Uh, is it just defectors? Is that our best source of information? Does that introduce any kind of bias, uh, people reflecting on childhood experiences or people who had um, you know, certain reasons for leaving and that may color their perspective? How much do we really know? Obviously, we can't conduct an opinion poll, and if you go into the country and you ask somebody in front of a government minder, you know, could that be coloring what we're hearing? Right. It's a good question, John. The, uh, I mean, I, I also, I want to make a point of not overstating how much anyone can know. I mean, there's people that have studied this country for decades, and there's large portions of the society that are always going to be a black hole. I think that there's just ample tertiary evidence to indicate that something related to this thesis of the ideology being a, a chief plank of the regime's control apparatus is, is true. But yeah, you're absolutely right that there's just certain stuff that we're never, we're never going to know. I mean, I, I would say also... Part of what served as a real emotional inspiration for me for trying to get this out, particularly the aspect of trying to humanize North Koreans, is that I went there and had a couple heavily alcohol-infused moments with people that were not my minders, that I wasn't necessarily supposed to be talking with. Uh, and the interactions that we had were stunningly normal. They're not just like... They're not automatons. They're not just talking about Kim Il-sung all the time. When they get drunk with you, they talk about the same things that all of us talk about. You know, 
jobs and family and who you want to sleep with, who's not letting you sleep with them, like all that. I mean, it's the exact same thing. And that, having that experience in particular serves as just a huge and important emotional anchor for me when I come back to the States and a, and a ramp up like what is occurring right now happens and the media seems largely just sort of to completely rip the humanity out of these people when they're portrayed. They're purely caricatures. And that's, I mean, that's a huge inspiration for trying to get this film out there. Yeah, our knowledge is very limited at every level. I mean, there's a very small diplomatic presence. The U.S. has none, but even you know, Western, European, and others is pretty limited. So we don't have much of a look in that way. What diplomats can do is very limited, and who they talk to is going to be very controlled. Well, you know, I, mean, you can, I mean, I don't speak Korean. I visited, but I mean, you know, I'd have a minder or an interpreter with me, and it would be a frightful thing for an average North Korean on the street for you to approach them. Because you're there with government permission. Oh, my goodness, they don't have permission to. I mean, the good thing is if you're with a group and you get those informal moments. I went, I had an interpreter and the guy I called my handler. And I think the handler was, you know, kind of secret service or whatnot. He traveled to the West. And, I mean, he was the guy who was the real propaganda guy. But the interpreter clearly was a human side. So I told him one of my friends from South Korea wanted coins from North Korea. So I said, I'd like to have some coins if I could. I'll see what I can do. Because you can, with Western money, buy Western kind of won for use in hard currency stores, but I wanted the real thing. He handed me coins the next day, very furtively, kind of, you know, off in the corner. And I asked, can I give, pay you for them? No, no, don't tell anyone. I mean, and I had that sense of, the, you know, this was a human moment. This is somebody who was responding very much non-politically in a way that could get him in trouble because there was a shared humanity there. So that's, that is very important to bear in mind that when we see all the kind of the mass, you know, kind of, oh my, somebody's died, some of that is political, some of that is real. I mean, some of that reflects a regime where you've been taught this is your leader who cares for you. Part of that is what is expected. And internal, these are probably people thinking, oh, I better do this or else the family's in trouble. Very hard for us to disentangle that, but I think it's important to recognize we, the limits of our knowledge. And we shouldn't assume that everything we see means these people are automatons ready to take up arms and take over the peninsula. Uh, question from over here, young lady in the back there. there. Um, Katie Scott, I think you actually started to kind of answer my question at the end. I just wanted to know what it was it like for both of you to actually like conscious, constantly be aware that you were under surveillance and did you ever kind of find those little moments where other North Koreans were sort of, I guess, know that you were always under surveillance? I guess I always wonder, you know, that like that they see what minders are and they know what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I don't if think the microphone is on. The question, the is, question is just what does it feel like to think that you're under surveillance all the time? Are the other North Koreans around you kind of aware of what minders are? Do they think they're like just tour guides, I guess? Uh, I can't answer that last question. Uh, I mean, you definitely severely have, when I went there, so last summer, I would, I'd be interested if there's any radical change in protocols since the early 90s. Although I had told myself that I would run every day when I was out there, and I didn't, but my justification has been that they wouldn't let me. So thank you for blowing my cover, Doug. <laughs> you have to tell them you plan to. They're not going to lose I'd, face I'd until you know. <laughs> uh, the, this is slightly related to your question, just about surveillance. I'll tell you this. It, it, not necessarily surveillance, but as far as control of where you can go. The ultimate expression or ultimate reaction to that comes about six days in. So I was there for nine days. And the ultimate emotional reaction to that is boredom. Eventually, and this happened with a bunch of people that I traveled with as well, 
you get bored when you're in North Korea. And you think, like, well, how can that be the case? This is, this is what I'm doing a film about. This is uh, supposed to be my yeah, filmmaking masterpiece. And uh, you realize it's because what makes travel to other countries fascinating is those unguarded moments where you can just walk around a city and talk to anyone you want. And additionally, you can't, you can't, you only, you can't do that, but also every question that you have, at least the official answer that you get from your handler, always seems to circle back to the exact same answer, which in my case was Kim Il-sung did that. Doesn't matter what it is, Kim Il-sung did that. And at a certain point, you're like, wait a minute, I think I might have exhausted my intellectual curiosity about this place. And then you take the drink. So <laughs> that's, so that, that, that I think is ultimately what my reaction was to it, where it's not the surveillance so much as the control. And look, you stand out. I mean, one of the advantages, they don't have to be heavy handed. I mean, I, when I went running every day, I'm a bearded Occidental in shorts running down the streets of Pyongyang. <laughs> I mean, they really wouldn't have trouble figuring out where I was. Um, and I assumed that my room was bugged. I didn't know if it was, but I assumed it was. I assumed that my handler knew more English than he let on, so even when we'd start talking, he didn't have to wait for the interpreter. I, so, because there were indications from the way he reacted, so I just made that assumption. Uh, but at least when I visited, they wanted the trip to be a success. So I, so I could push for things. I mean, I, they, I said, can I take photos? Yes, anything you want. Now, they got irritated because I took photos of all the propaganda, and they understood what I thought of it, and that's kind of the difference in terms of you. And they kind of sat me down after a day and a half that my handler said, oh, you're going to hurt relations between our countries and my career. I thought it was very interesting because I'm taking all these photos and whatnot. So after that, I was a little more judicious, but I'd still take them, and you know, I'd get it, you'd see him frowning off the side, but they wouldn't stop me because they wanted it to work. So you, you take that into account. And you assume you're going, and you know, the, the repetitious answers are there unless you can get the unguarded moments. Though that tells you something as well. Right, you right here on the aisle. Samar Chatterjee. Um, your film was very interesting. Uh, if we subtract some of the prejudiced American commentators, it looked pretty good. I mean, most of the buildings and so on, it was almost like any American propaganda when I was growing up in India, we saw, you know. So, so from that standpoint, you did a pretty good job. Uh, uh, and they could probably delete those prejudice statements. I mean, uh, every country and every, every set of cultures have prejudice statement about others. Um, and some of those were like that. Um, but, but there was a woman who made some of the very, very interesting comment, like, let's say, she said, South Koreans need American troops sitting there in order to defend themselves. I, I, why, why can't they be free of American troops, you know? I mean, that's a good question. Um, uh, and, and that's why one should be able to, in this country, understand why the North Koreans are so, you know, so, uh, so much concerned that here, uh, and, and you know, had it been like Vietnam, if North and South Korea finally fell and if the Americans were thrown out, probably it would have been like North Korea could have been like Vietnam. You know, America had a long isolation with Vietnam after the end of the Vietnam War, but now America is back there. America could be back in a bigger North Korea. If it, so you made a very initial good introduction, which you said that you don't want Americans to be paranoid about this. Right. Uh, I think what your question was, well, I'll tell you what your question was. <laughs> and actually, I would immediately direct it to Doug, who. Oh, so your question was a compliment. That's good. 
Well, let's say uh, the question of uh, American troops on the Korean Peninsula. Let's. I'd have Doug answer that, but I of course need to briefly say something. Uh, uh, I, I tend to be towards the more libertarian, non-interventionist side. And the one thing that I think increasingly to me seems to be a very compelling reason for us scaling back our troop presence there is that it seems like one of the big reasons that China continues to prop up this country, to help prop up this country, is because they fear, for whatever reason, uh, 20 or 30,000 American troops right on their border. If those soldiers are no longer there, that justification or that fear should dissipate. So I think that's uh, one of the more compelling reasons that I've found as to why we should scale back. It's really a creation of China and Soviet Union. Right. Well, yeah, I think well, there's a lot, I think, within what you're asking. I mean, they have impressive buildings, but what's inside the buildings are not particularly impressive. I stayed at a hotel that was built. It was obviously a Western-style hotel. You have the slot for Kleenex, but no Kleenex, of course. I mean, I flew in from uh, you know, Tokyo through in Be Beijing from Tokyo. You know, in Tokyo, my hotel has 20 towels. I show up in Pyongyang, and they have two thin ones. I stole one of them. It's actually at my house. It's wonderful. It has the, you know, the Koryo Hotel. And so as not to be embarrassed in case they found it, I actually wrapped my wet jogging clothes in it, too. So if they found it, I could explain, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I needed this to whatever because it's just so this thin. Exactly, exactly. But I, I want to, I mean, that what they put very high value on stuff. So, you know, they're very proud. They have an Arch of Triumph, and it is bigger, as they told me, than the French Arch of Triumph. The, the Juche Monument, which is a self-reliance, it has this kind of weird flame on top, and it has all these bricks for different, you know, Kim Il-sung study societies around the world, including in America, which I was not aware existed. It's taller than the Washington Monument. So they could go on and on in size, but, but there was kind of nothing, it was a facade. I mean, the maternity hospital had a marble interior, and I counted how many babies and how many bassinets, and it was like four babies and 60 bassinets. They had modern, seemingly modern electronic equipment, none of it plugged in. And, and in terms of Kim Il-sung, they have all these red plaques, and well, this is a gift of the great leader, like he's a philanthropist kind of showing up and, instead of being the dictator who runs everything. So it's a, it's a very weird thing. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're good at this kind of stuff, but the moment you get out of Pyongyang, forget the good stuff. I mean, you know, the countryside's a real mess. And there was an ox, when I was at least, an ox cart in Pyongyang itself, which is in fact, you know, the showcase. Um, I mean, I think the U.S. troops should come home, but I think what one has to say is, whatever one thinks of American involvement in terms of the division of the, of the peninsula and the war, and I mean, there are South Koreans who blame America for the division of the peninsula, what I tell them is, well, yes, if America hadn't been there, you would have spent the last 60 years as part of Kim Il-sung's communist utopia. Please don't blame me, because we would not be talking. You know, that you exist in a prosperous and today free society only because of that. That it took, it took South Korea a long time. They had military dictatorship. You can blame the U.S. for a lot of stuff. Fine, go ahead. The point is they live in a society that is prosperous and free only because the U.S. stopped Kim Il-sung's invasion in 1950. I mean, I just, uh, to me, that is the starting point. And, and I say that as... It's over with them. Yeah. Do they take it well? Uh, well, it depends a bit on who I'm talking to. You know. And I say that as a critic of American military involvement. I say that as somebody who, if I was running the U.S. government, if I was Harry Truman's chief advisor in June 1950, I'm not sure what I would have advised. Did I, would I want to militarize? I mean, but I, to me, that has to be the starting point. And I get frustrated with you know, left-wing students and others who denounce America. I got it. You know, we supported Chun Doo-won and Park Chung-hee. I mean, I understand all that. But still, the starting point needs to be that recognition 
This is a monstrous regime in the North in terms of human rights. It took a long time for the South to get it right, but they have it right. I mean, I'm going there later this month for a conference. I mean, it has its problems, but it's a free society. Kim Dae-jung takes power. You know, No Myo-hoon takes power. You know, these are anti-American lawyers and activists. Opposition wins. This is a society, despite its problems, it really has progressed. Now, I think they have to make their own way and decide where they want to go. My, and I think what's interesting, and I think what gives credence to Rob's film, is that some of that nationalism you see in the propaganda is in the South. South Koreans don't like the troops. South Koreans get frustrated the status of forces agreement. Back, No Muhyun probably won like 10 years ago in part because there was a terrible traffic accident involving an American military vehicle. Two teenage girls are killed. Now this is an accident, but under the status of forces agreement, they are tried in a US military court. South Koreans say what, are we still a colony? They're acquitted, and I think probably properly because it's an accident. You know, it's, but this, so this stuff has resilience, but you see in, in South Korea, they go in cycles. And there, there's a time of kind of warming, well, North Korea is our lost brethren, you know, and we can get together. And then Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un and all these people start doing all this stuff, and they start saying, well, maybe they're not quite so nice. So I think in the South, there is frustration at being dependent on America, at the same time, great concern with North Korea, as well as a residual concern for Japan out of the colonial past, and to some degree, growing concern over China for some, you know, a number of reasons. So all of that swirls around, so nationalism is kind of battling these other impulses. All right, two very short questions. Who has short questions? Okay, great. Uh, you on the front with, in the aisle here, and Sam? Um, my name is Jose, and I am from Venezuela, where we have an authoritarian regime that admires North Korea. And I'm going actually to North Korea in about a few months just to see how admirable that society is. And my concern is about nuclear weapons. Uh, quickly, uh, do, you, do you believe that there can be a nuclear attack? And if so, that the South can stop it if it happens? No. There is, I mean, um, I, I, nothing that I have seen suggests the North Koreans are suicidal. I tell everyone they want their virgins in this world, not the next. They are not thinking about, you know, the blessings in the hereafter. They live a, I mean, the, the video of Kim Jong-il with the wine, actually he preferred cognac most of the time. These are people who live extraordinarily well. They are not interested in war. I think this is play acting for a number of purposes. Among other things, we've played into their hands. We've given them all the attention they want. I, I would not worry about nuclear war. Yeah. Now, always possibility of mistake, miscalculation, but certainly nothing intentional. I'm Sam Kasman, Competitive Enterprise Institute. So as a follow-on, you've described a regime that's incredibly evil, a society with an incredibly powerful and cohesive worldview, in large part divorced from the reality of other countries. I'm not sure which way that cuts, though, on the question of whether their current leaders may or may not be uh, suicidal. Yeah, they like cognac, and maybe they like their virgins here, but they may think there's a prospect elsewhere as well. Are we really dehumanizing them if we take their leaders at their word, or are we really dehumanizing them if we don't take them at their word? Well, let me, I'll say just two quick things. Uh, well, I, my sense is, I mean, there's an entire apparatus that is making the military decisions in this country. It is not just Kim Jong-un. And the bulk of the people that are occupying those higher tiers right now are mostly the exact same people that were there when his father was in power. There has been some purges, but the people that are helping to make those decisions are the same people, and they've demonstrated, particularly over the last two decades, that they 
fully appreciate what the consequences would be for a serious military attack. And then about the humanization thing, I mean that in terms of the depiction of the average North Korean. I don't really care if people decide to make fun of Kim Jong-un, except for the idea that it, it sort of ignores the notion that there is a profound evil intelligence and strategy that under, underlies the decisions of this country. But that's, I put that aside. Mine is much more about the way that we betray and talk about the people that were born into this system. And that we, uh, I think, flatter ourselves when we distance ourselves from them so much. Because ultimately, and the reason why Jonathan Haidt is in this film, is that he talks about a certain set of shared cognitive structures that make us susceptible to a certain kind of propaganda that are inherent in all people, in all homo sapiens, not just North Koreans. And that if you can just tug a little bit past the superficial media representation and dig into the, the, the deep tissue of the way that this worldview is crafted, you will see some astonishing and hopefully slightly alienating similarities. I have two presumptions. Presumption number one is that politicians lie. So I have, you know, American politicians lie all the time. I have no reason to believe that North Korean politicians also do not lie all the time. <laughs> Especially when what they're doing is saying verbally exactly what their father and grandfather said, playing the same behavior, threatening to turn Seoul into a lake of fire, and nothing ever happens. Instead, they use it, and I would argue, demonstrating they're not insane, but they're very crafty. They've played a very weak hand very well. They run a bankrupt country, a half million people starve to death, it's a wreck, nobody would pay attention. They are dominating the international headlines right as we speak. They've done quite well, they've gotten us to buy them off, they spent 10 years with South Korea, threw money at them as part of the sunshine policy. These are people who've played a very weak hand very well. I see nothing to suggest that we should take them at their word when they make claims that have been repeatedly made in the past and never acted upon. And tied to that is I see nothing to suggest they're suicidal. That, you know, and I think that, again, goes against human experience. Most political leaders in most countries don't evidence the fact they're suicidal, especially when they live very well on the backs of everybody else within those societies. You know, the Iranian leadership was quite happy to have mass you know, attacks against the Iraqis, but I noticed you know, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini did not lead those attacks in person. He encouraged people to make those attacks. He didn't seem to show up when the guns were firing. You know, I see nothing to suggest that Kim Jong-un and company, I mean, Kim Jong-un, look at him, he's roly-poly. Compare him to that poor 23-year-old who's starving, eating nothing. You know, I mean, you know, he's in really quite good shape. I mean, you know, these people are living very well. I see nothing to suggest they want to be vaporized. And I think they're rational. When I was there, they commented to me with great pride how they had had to rebuild Pyongyang after America had destroyed it. Well, that told me something beyond what they were trying to tell me, which is they noticed that America had destroyed Pyongyang. Right? <laughs> Yeah, and that was, that was 1950s American technology, and they've been able to watch the Iraq War and all sorts of other stuff. So, I mean, they're evil, without question. I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they're suicidal. All right, well, please join us in the Winter Garden for uh, snacks and beverages. Thank you to Rob and Doug for... for <laughs>